It takes a special kind of album to change the ground you walk on. Hi, my name's Talon Stradley, and I'd consider myself a relatively new fan of Walter Martin. I heard his songs here and there, but it wasn't until his fifth studio album, The World's at Night, that I took a hard dive into his catalog. The World at Night. Through his music, I got to know this apocryphal man who told stories about art history. You take out his hammer and spike. You chip at that marble until the marble looked right. And he'd say, oh, 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 that's why they call me Michelangelo or songs about being in a band, or performing odd jobs around New York City. Freshman in college, I was delivering pizza, but to deliver one pie a half an hour round trip. And college kids, man, they don't tip. As I took in all this music, I waited patiently for his next album. I bet a lot of us find new music when bands are promoting a recent release. But that doesn't really compare to seeing it teased from the start. Before all the blogs and news outlets pick it up, you get cryptic Instagram posts, videos, mysterious dates. I was ecstatic when I first saw this coming to form on Walter Martin's Instagram. And when that album released, I was given the music that would soundtrack my most eventful year yet. I listened to it as I walked between classes my final semester of college. I listened to it as I journeyed to look at wedding venues and I put one of the tracks on our wedding playlist. I cried while listening to it as I held my wife's hand in a fast food drive through That album is called The Bear and it's by Walter Martin. On this podcast, we'll be exploring the bear, track by track to dive into its themes and impacts. But don't worry, it's not just me. Uh, My name is Walter Martin. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, I was born from Washington, D.C. I uh, live in upstate New York now. I lived in uh, New York City for 26 years. I've spoken with Walter Martin himself, as well as a slew of his peers, collaborators, and appreciators. I even talked to Walt's mom. You'll hear all those guests and their thoughts spread across the entire series, wherever makes sense for each song. So, stop in your tracks, take stock of where you're at, and let me introduce you to The Bear. The stars are everywhere Come on, come on, come on, just take a look up there They fill the darkest corners of the darkest air they go where satellites would never ever dare And then suddenly Over there I see the bear Now, let's get into the first track of the bear Hunters in the Snow And how it sets the stage for an album Largely about the seasons and cycles of life After that, we'll explore some of Walt's past seasons as we dive into his time in The Walkman and Jonathan Fire Eater. 
Hunters in the Snow sets the stage for the rest of the album, both in the physical and thematic sense. The Bear as a record was written and recorded in an old one-room schoolhouse in the wilderness of upstate New York. Yeah, well, I, I constructed it like most of it in the, in this room. Really, really I think all, I, I wrote it all in this room, uh, which is just like an old uh, schoolhouse that, that operated as a one-room schoolhouse from 1810 or 20 until 1950. And now it's like, a, I don't know what it is, a rock, a rock and roll studio or a music studio. I have about a million instruments in here. But when I, when I, that, that's, that's a new thing. When I, when I wrote the album, there was nothing in here because it was not insulated or winterized or anything like that. Um, and there's no heat. So the only, I mean, there's a wood-burning stove, which is still here. As Walt renovated this space in the cold of winter, the setting seeped into the music, which we see especially in the opening track. On the thematic side, The Bear is an album of seasons, of changes, of cycles, and our place in it all. This song begins in the harshest of life cycles the winter. We are far away where the tall trees bend in the wind, the prey falls to hunters, and the cold shakes our bodies. Hey Tommy, I'm so far away up in these hills. The tall trees sway as hunters haul their fallen prey, and the snow falls on the lane, and I'm shivering once again. There is a kind of sad distance here. In this first stanza specifically, while it isn't overly harsh, it does touch on the many negative aspects of snow. He's far away, up in the hills, winds strong enough to bend trees, and he's shivering. The environment here is coarse, but still peaceful in a way that can only be achieved by the frigid wilderness, as seen by the snow falling on the lane. This contradiction, the calm nature of a harsh landscape, is one that we explore in the next stanza as we move inside to a bed that feels just as encompassing as the snow. Somehow, my friend, I fell asleep and tied my ankles in my sheets. Awoke so slow to snow so deep. No, but I can't run away to my horses and my sleigh. We are asleep in bed. Something that is normally a great solace in the winter months, but here it feels just as difficult as the world outside. We go from the cold, swaying landscape to a sleepy, tangled interior. Parts of it feel warm and cozy. He is asleep and waking slowly, while other elements continue with the difficulties. He is tangled in the sheets, and there is a deep snow. Through this back and forth, Walt is able to convey the complicated relationship one has with the snowy wilderness. There is no horse, no sleigh. You wake up in the faraway hills to your world covered in white. It is rarely considered a kind environment, but there's a beauty that can be found if you are willing to put in the work. In the chorus of the song, we can see that despite all the challenges and difficulties, This is still a place that Walt calls home. Oh, now I know I'm home. Yes, now I know I'm home. In many ways, I understand this sentiment. I grew up in the mountains of Southern California where snow boxed us every winter. 
During my senior year of high school, I lived off the grid 20 minutes outside of Big Bear, up a mile and a half of dirt road. We lived in a cabin on top of a mountain where an entire side of the house was made of windows. Every morning, we would see the sun come up over the mountains, lighting this perfect snow-covered world. But I also know how suffocating that can be, how isolating or scary. Sometimes, my family would need to take the snowmobile just to get to our cars down by the highway so we can get to work. As I write this, my dad is up in that cabin alone with a broken tractor and buried snowmobile, digging himself out of one of the biggest storms we've seen in some time. I have one particular memory of walking up that mile and a half road alone in the moonlight after some friends dropped me off after a play rehearsal. The snow is an enigma. It is harsh and peaceful, cold and cozy, suffocating and completely empty. And sometimes that just feels like home. But the important part of this song is that this winter doesn't last. All of these contradictory elements, its loneliness, its horses and sleighs, its cold, its big blanket of snow, it's all temporary. It's one stage of a cycle, an important stage, one that signifies both the end and the beginning. Hey, Tommy, tell me how you've been. I heard you chipped your chiseled chin and sea salt burned the broken skin as the thick ice melted thin. Now we see the end begin. With chipped chins and burnt skin, the winter has left us all a little worse for wear. But it's coming to an end, and that thick ice is melting. I love the last line of this stanza in particular. Now we see the end begin. The ending turns to the beginning. In the next stanza, we explore the ultimate ending. The ending we will all face someday. The long winter, death. Oh, isn't it so strange to think how down in the ground our bones will sink and fill the holes where blind moles blink. But we somehow find our way to the palace in the clay. The winter is often associated with death, but especially the winter of 2020 when this album was written. Many of us were anxiously watching the same daily death tolls we had been watching all year. But this stanza doesn't wrestle with death out of fear. Quite the contrary, it's almost humorous. It's just a strange thought, something to mull over while you trudge through the snow. Walt is able to so casually mention death because there is an acknowledgement that death is a simple part of life. It is natural. It involves soil and moles and clay. Even the light alliteration, blind moles blink, puts a playful spin on a dark topic. This verse is followed by a beautiful, hopeful, and ethereal piano break, which brings us into the next stage, from the topic of death to new life. The winter is naturally followed by spring. There are images of a little girl, green trees, summer, and rich soil. Mm -hmm. 
protect her from the cold. I think an important part of this stanza is that it is a direct effect of the previous verses. A simple game of cause and effect. Yes, there was a cold winter. Yes, the snow covered the world, made us shiver, and yes, we all reflected on death. But because of that, the ground is wet. This is a new place for growth. A place that will make the cold more bearable next year. Finally, Walt reflects on these cycles. He knows how these seasons work. The winter dies, the spring is born, and the cycle continues on. Even a city boy can tell you that. I'm just a city boy, my friend. But I know where the winter ends. It walks away as spring begins. Dies beneath the rain. And this whole mess starts again. Oh, now I know I'm home. Yes, now I know I'm home. Hunters in the Snow explores this cycle particularly the moment where one cycle ends and another begins. I think that in many ways, The Bear is an album that catches a similar moment in Walt's life, a season that starts with him moving to upstate New York during the tumultuous 2020, when many of us were starting our own cycles again. But before that, Walt had been through several other stages in his life. Before The Bear, Walt created five other solo studio albums, including a number of children's albums. Before that, he was a member of the highly influential band, The Walkman. And before that, he was a member of Jonathan Fireeater, a band that paved the way for other New York rock bands. Jonathan Fireeater came straight from Walt's high school band. Uh, I guess it was our senior year in high school when Paul, uh, had, who was a guitar player, had gone off to college, and it was just me and Matt and Stu in dc uh we played a lot of shitty music throughout our, our career in high school you know a lot of like ska and funk and a lot of terrible stuff whatever phase we were going through but then by the time we got like the velvet underground and like you know leonard cohen and stuff like that we felt like we could actually mostly with the velvet underground it was like we could actually play make music like this and it could be like beautiful and cool and romantic or, or whatever and and sort of dark and and we could actually probably make it I just, I'll never forget it. I was like, wow, this is great. This is actually like music I love and we're playing it well and I'm so proud of this and we're not playing like some shitty funk or ska or whatever we were doing before. Uh, and it felt really, it just felt natural. It felt like this is perfect. And with Stu in front, it felt like a real band. It felt like it had something magical. So that that's really how, that, that was sort of how that band was born. And then we got our friend Tom to play bass and sort of went to college briefly. Uh, and then we all decided to drop out of college together and do the band for real in, in New York City. The band moved to New York and quickly began recording their first release. Well, we, right, right when we moved to New York, we had a lot of songs written. We had like 10 songs written. So we recorded very quickly when we were there, right? We, we, I think we recorded in the studio before I even had an apartment. I was staying at a friend's apartment. 
So we recorded an album right off the bat and to have something like, you know, sort of a calling card. Uh, so we did shows and would sell that and like sell it at the video store and stuff like that. And this caught the attention of the labels. Quickly, like all these labels, I don't know, it was an amazing thing. All these labels got interested. We put out like a couple independent things, just like an EP. And then all the big major labels, it was like when major labels were signing people for insane amounts of money and and making insane, the, ba- the labels were making huge money on selling CDs, you know. Suddenly we were the band they wanted. So we had, got flown out to LA, like... All the every every major label uh, was courting us, so we talked to all of them. We went to fancy dinners with all of them, and we were always just like drunk and like hungover, and thought it was just the most hilarious thing ever. They signed this incredible contract with DreamWorks. Walter's mom, Judy Martin, and had a huge party with all sorts of celebrities at the top of the World Trade Center. So it looked like they were off to a very auspicious start. You know, we got the big record deal. We're the second band in history to get uh, health. We got dental insurance in our contract, which is something my parents still talk about. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I think that's right. And I think that was largely, he probably told you, due to his manager. I think he was the one that was insistent upon it because he had some tooth work that needed to be done. (laughs) I don't think the boys cared. However, dental insurance aside, the band found their experimental aspirations weren't in line with a major label's pop sensibilities. So we, yeah, we just made the album we wanted to make, and it wasn't a pop out. It wasn't an album that a major label could do anything with. We tried to make like a song that people would like, but it was terrible. We tried to make like a hit single. It was terrible. On top of this, the band was experiencing internal conflict as well. But we had a lot of trouble within the band. There was like drugs and stuff like that. All the conflict within the band became, got worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, and not that we the band was together for that. We were together for, I guess, four years, maybe, even though we had technically started when I was in fifth grade. So it, it ended up tearing the band apart. And so we broke up after after we made that one one record for the major label. We tried to make another one, but what we were writing, we were we were not a very solid unit anymore. So we um, just decided to to just break up. We were, we were unhappy and, and bagged it. A lot of this conflict stemmed from their lead singer and Walt's longtime friend, Stuart Lupton, who was struggling with drug addiction at the time. We'll talk a lot more about Stu in future episodes, but needless to say, it was a difficult time. While Jonathan Fire Eater was a bit of a flash that only lasted a few years, it sparked a fire that still burns to this day. If you were writing a book about the late 90s, early aughts, New York City rock scene, then your first chapter would be about Jonathan Fire Eater. In fact, someone did write that book. It's called Meet Me in the Bathroom by music journalist Lizzie Goodman, and Jonathan Fire Eater is chapter three, right behind chapters on New York and rock and roll. Jonathan Fire Eater's impact cannot be understated. Jonathan Fire Eater predated by by a couple of years, like all the bands in New York City that kind of exploded, The Strokes and Interpol and certainly us. Matt Berninger, lead singer, lyricist, and frontman for Grammy Award-winning band, The National. When The Walkmen came out, they were already a little bit, had this, this, this seniority. The Walkmen was Walter's next season of life. Him and a couple other members of Jonathan Fire Eater wanted to form another band, but without Stuart Lupton, they were missing a key piece. We didn't really have a singer, you know, none of us were really singers. 
the solution came to them from Walt's own family. Yeah, so uh, then uh, my cousin Ham, Hamilton, who's the singer of the Walkman, he, he grew up across the street from me in D.C. Our moms are our sisters. Hamilton Lighthouser was the lead vocalist of another short-lived band, The Recoys, who were also in the middle of breaking up. And he called me, and Ham's a good singer, and he called me, and as his band was breaking up, he was like, why don't we join forces and I'll, and I'll play with you guys? And I was like, hey, geez, that's a good idea. I never thought of that. And thus, the Walkmen were born. So that, yeah, so the Walkmen formed then. We had started writing songs quickly. And Ham was singing. Uh, we suddenly had a singer. And it was like, oh, wow, okay, let's, we could do this band. I think they just all agreed they wanted to try to make a go of it. Like the Bear, the Walkmen's first project came about as a result of a new recording space. Only instead of an isolated old cabin, it was a new recording studio built by Walt and the former members of Jonathan Fireeater. So we we built a recording studio in Upper Manhattan, um, and which got us like in debt together, you know, and it was sort of tied us together by being, you know, financially ob- obligated together. We just recorded ourselves and sort of experimented, and really that band formed really as a recording project, which was our first record in that studio. Uh, and, you know, really just just experimenting and, and having fun with the studio and with our new sort of setup. One thing that comes up a lot when talking to people about the Walkman is that they weren't really trying to be cool. But they were anyways. They were very measured about, like, the hype you know, and the buzz, not only around them, but around everybody, you know, it's, it's, they were never a band to sort of like, <laughs> be like overly uh, sycophantic or anything to like, to, they, they kind of did their business and, and they weren't like a big, like, eh, let's go party. What well, they weren't like, like scenesters, really. They were like, they're really serious about their art and they were really serious about their friendship too. People would come by and ask you things like, what are your goals and what are your mission? And we would just, you know, give them the worst possible responses we could think. You know, I don't know. We were really bad at that. Peter Matthew Bauer, fellow member of The Walkman. Yeah, we always wanted to do better, but just in order to do more music. It wasn't like we wanted to like take over the world and become a huge band. So we were very, we never had a great strategy for like, we never sat down and like mapped out what we wanted to do. I don't know. Just for some reason, maybe other bands didn't either. And they just somehow... Um, made it happen better than us. But I think that we always wanted to prove that we were not what people thought. Uh, and I'm proud of that instinct. I love that instinct. Uh, I don't think... Uh, we watched a lot of bands, uh, a lot of our contemporaries really become massive bands while we sort of uh, treaded water, I think, because of that instinct. But whatever, that's cool. I think that's kind of just who we were. While this instinct may have hurt their commercial success, it's also why they're your favorite band's favorite band. For many people, this attitude felt incredibly honest. And they just had 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 a kind of respect for music that was uh, they were never snobby about any kind of music, I remember. They were always they were always very you know, just students of all forms of it, all of them were. The Walkmen were active from the years 2000 to 2013, where they announced their indefinite hiatus. But this year, in 2023, they have a reunion tour. I don't know what's next for the Walkmen. I wish I did, but you should go see them if you get the chance. And now the Walkmen are back together, which is like, you know, getting doing a lot of shows. So that's that's been been really fun to see that full circle. 
While the band was instrumental in the New York City rock scene, there was always some level of disconnect between what the fans wanted, what the labels wanted, and what the band wanted. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of our records sound really cool, but I do hear us struggling between trying to sound like we want to sound and trying like to sound like we want, thought other people wanted us to sound or we have, uh, that might make people like us more. Especially with our last record. With our last record, Heaven, we were like, let's just try to make a really polished, professional-sounding record. Uh, and, you know, I, can't, I really just don't even like that record at all. I mean, I like a couple of songs, I guess, but... It just it it just feels it doesn't feel very uh, like a very happy record to me. It just feels like us trying to do something that we weren't. I think Heaven highlights this disconnect best. While Walt might not feel favorably about it, music press outlets really loved it. Stereo Gum ranked it the eighth best album of the year, while Pitchfork rated it a solid eight point one. The title track of the album was even the closing song for the series finale of the hit TV show How I Met Your Mother. After 13 years in the band, in 2013, the group decided to put the Walkman to rest. Well, I mean, we just had done it for a long time at that point, and we kind of were tired of it. You know, the touring, but I, I didn't have kids at that point, um, but everybody else did. And, and like, I hated touring it so much at that point. I had been touring for so long. Uh, and just tra- all the travel and being away from home. Being a group of five guys on the road and working together, it's not the easiest thing to do when you do have families I, we're all i was married at that point i just like i didn't want to i didn't want to do it anymore and it wasn't you know we were we could never make like the cool decision as far we always were struggling to to make ends meet you know to get the enough money to support the five of us so we could never like really make the cool artistic decisions we wanted to make and it ended up just be steering us down a road that we didn't necessarily want to be on and being I think it's pretty creatively unsatisfied and and um, it just didn't feel great, you know, and touring didn't, it just didn't feel good anymore. So we just, you know, pack, packed it in. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm very glad that we did. It was, it was time. By now you're probably picking up on some of the cycles and seasons that Walt has experienced in the past. Make a band with friends, become a critical darling, struggle with musical identity, and continue on to the next project. It's these experiences that make the bear so poignant. Just like we see in Hunters in the Snow, all things come to an end, no matter how good they are. The difficulties, the triumphs, the challenges, the successes, it all ends at some point. And that's okay, because those endings lead to new beginnings. The Ignobles led to Jonathan Fireeater, which led to The Walkman, which led to various solo careers. That's life. And now the end begins. Next episode, we'll be talking about the next track on the record, New Green, and how it touches on the complicated but loving nature of family. The Song Is Never Done is a production of Newton's Dark Room. It was written, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Talon Stradley. The podcast art was created by your brother and mine, Trent Stradley. All the music you heard is by Walter Martin. You can purchase The Bear and all his other albums at waltermartinmusic.com. Might I suggest Reminisce Bar and Grill, which has a lot of songs about being in bands and making music, including the six-minute tour de force I went alone on a solo Australian tour. 
All that and more at waltermartinmusic.com. Special thanks to this episode's guests, Judy Martin, Matt Berninger, and Peter Matthew Bauer. For music from all our guests, follow the official The Song Is Never Done playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the description. If you want to support the show, consider backing Newton's Dark Room on Patreon. You can get pins featuring the artwork, special transcripts, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Newton's Dark Room. I make a lot of podcasts, and I love talking about podcasts, as well as the indie music ecosystem. If you want to chat about any of this, you can find me at Newton's Dark Room on Instagram and TikTok. For all my podcasts and everything else, you can visit newtonsdarkroom.com. Thanks for joining me, and we'll see you next time.